Today's sermon continues in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. It's on page 707. If you're using the Pew Bible, there's also, of course, a sermon outline there in the bulletin. In this chapter, we're seeing Jesus enter the stage of history. After his baptism and his temptation, he's called a few disciples, and now he's begun this public ministry in Capernaum. And the events of today uh, that we'll talk about here in our text are continuing the same day from last week uh, in the synagogue, the story in the synagogue where Jesus is confronted by the man with the evil spirit and, and Jesus drives out that evil spirit. As I mentioned last week, Mark's purpose in writing is to introduce us to Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to save and redeem his people. And one way that we could divide up the whole book of Mark is to see that it's kind of just two parts. The first part is the presentation of the Messiah. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And in the second part, we, we see that, that Mark is showing us the testing of the Messiah, what Jesus goes through to save his people, his trials and his cross and the rescue and the empty tomb. So we're still in this presentation part. We're still in the first chapter. And uh, we're laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for understanding this man who appeared in our history. So let's look at this story from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with, Simon, uh, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all of the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Skipping down to verse 38, uh, they mention in verse 37, everyone is looking for you when Jesus goes away for to pray, and then Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Please pray with me. Father, we do come now to your word, and we want to know better uh, this one who you sent, this one who appeared on the stage of our history. So we pray to that end that you would speak to us this morning, and that you would give me the words to speak and help us to hear and to understand the message and to see presented before us the Messiah who's come to save his people. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about these stories. I was thinking about how obsessed our culture is about health and about wellness and about how 
so much of the information that comes at us every day is about how to live longer and to live better. And how much of it coming at us is the way that you can feel better, the way that your back can be better, this kind of mattress, the way that that this kind of diet will help you feel better. All of these things that we think about all the time about our health. And one of the things that is interesting, and I don't know exactly really when this started happening, but it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, how pharmaceutical companies are now advertising directly to the public about their new products, their new medicines, their new prescriptions. You know, and you never used to see commercials on TV, and even in magazines as much, about specific brands of prescription medicines, right, that you should go and ask your doctor about. I guess it makes sense that as people become more interested in health, as we become savvier about uh, our needs, as there's more medicine available uh, to cure things, as we have much more access to information, maybe this is just a natural thing that would come out, is that, that these companies would use their marketing to directly to the public, and so that you would know the names of all of these different kinds of medicines that for all of these different kinds of diseases that you didn't even really know were ever out there. And I think it's funny to, that they also have to list the side effects, you know? So you hear the list of all of the things that can go wrong when you take this medicine, and you say, no matter what happens to me, I'm never going to take that, right? But we think a lot about our health, and we want to know what's out there, and it's important to care for the bodies that God has given us, but this quest for health also can become an idol. It can become uh, something that distracts us from the bigger questions. It can become something that becomes an end rather than a means to a better life. It becomes uh, something that we become obsessed about, or something that, that actually makes us more anxious and hurts our health rather then really helps us. There's a quest there to try to place our lives into our own hands. And Jesus speaks into that this morning, doesn't he? As he heals people. As he talks to us about the, the, the restoration that he brings. The setting of this narrative is the continuation of the previous event on the same day. Last week, I mentioned the Capernaum is a town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee on the northern side. It's a village where Jesus was kind of the base for much of his earthly ministry. Lots of important things happened around Capernaum, uh, as we'll continue to see as we read Mark's account. It was located near a major road, uh, trading route, so even though it wasn't really a large city, it was a, a somewhat prosperous one, and as well as we see in Mark's gospel and through the other gospels too, the Galilee was the place where the, there was the greatest receptivity towards Jesus' message. He was much more welcomed among the common people there than he was among the sort of, in, in the capital, in Jerusalem, among the, the uh, cultural center and the religious center of the society. On this Sabbath day in Capernaum, Jesus was with the people gathered for worship in the synagogue he began to teach, as was the custom for lay people, even visitors who would come into the synagogue, that there would be a, a schedule for reading, and then someone from the audience could stand, a lay person, and uh, teach and encourage the people with their comments about the law that was read. And so Jesus, as we, we saw all this last week, uh, Jesus stood up and, and began to teach, and the assembly of the synagogue was shocked by his words, even before he did anything. His teachings were new. They were of a different type or kind. 
And Mark would have us continue to see that for Jesus, his teachings were the central part of his ministry. And the proof of that is here in verses 38 and 39. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The people of Capernaum, of course, want him to stay and continue to do miracles, but Jesus isn't beholden to their agenda. His message needs to go out to others in the next towns, and that's why he came, he says. He came to announce the gospel. He came to announce the good news of the nearness and the arrival of the kingdom of God. And that is the main thing. But certainly, as Mark is presenting Jesus to us, that's not the only thing. It's not just a ministry of words. Mark wants us to see explicitly that Jesus is validating the authority of his words by his works. Jesus is proving who he is by what he does, proving that he's authenticating his message by his actions. So so these miraculous works, the casting out of demons, the healing of, of all kinds of illnesses have a purpose to solidify, to validate uh, his words. In other words, uh, Jesus is not going to just sit and heal people in Capernaum until there's no one else to heal, as though his ministry were just about healing and just about that village and just about those particular people. If it were just about healing, right, Jesus could continue in Capernaum for a long time because people always get sick and they always have accidents and get injured and he can, always, he can have a steady stream of clients, right? But the message has to go out to other places. And we see that Jesus has, has a focus here, a priority, that this message would go out. But the word and the deed are inseparable, even if they have a different purpose and a different priority in Jesus' ministry. He's showing the integrity of his ministry in his person. There's no hypocrisy, there's no unfulfilled promises. There's no claims that he can't back up. He stands at this intersection of word and deed so remarkably, so beautifully. You know, of course, of course, better than anyone who's ever lived. But we, but we see it here very clearly. We should notice this. And I think it's a model and a challenge for us as individuals and as Grace EP Church and as the Church of Jesus Christ that our works and our words would have that kind of integrity. And we know, of course, of the damage that we can cause when our words don't match our claims, when we fail to practice what we preach, and how scandals hurt our witness, and integrity is needed for the church in every generation. And every time a high-profile Christian leader runs into a moral failure, it calls our message into question by many bystanders. Now, there's something about that that's unfair, right? Because the truth of Jesus isn't dependent on the behavior of his people, Thankfully so. Christians don't claim to be perfect either. But we are held to a different standard than the world, and we're called to walk in humility and love and unity and purity. We're called to admit our faults rather than hide them, cover them up as though uh, we live like those of the world. So there's one sense in which when when these things don't match up, it hurts our witness. But even more, and on the flip side... What we see here, actually, is the power of deeds to support the words and to make people hear the words because of what they see and experience. And the most powerful testimony of words are heard because of what we do. 
And Roman historians marveled at the love of the early Christians, even though they thought they were all wrong. Right? We have accounts of those in history. The church has gotten it right many times, too. The point is that Jesus alone has this perfect connection of word and deed, and he gives us a model. He gives us a challenge. He gives us an opportunity to be more like him, that our works would support our message, that that would be some, the kind of integrity that the people of God display to the world. As we've been seeing in this account, Mark wants us to grasp the authority of Jesus in this chapter, and we need to just spend one minute about, uh, here about authority. Jesus uses words and deeds to display his authority. And I, I talked about this a little bit last week as well. The kind of authority that is talked about here is this kind of power that decides and controls. God alone has ultimate authority of all of life, and life is to be lived in recognition of his authority. All human authority is derived from God's authority. And Jesus is specifically showing a God-like authority. He's doing divine things as he's teaching in the synagogue, as he's interpreting and expounding the law of God from the Old Testament in a way that is with authority. As he's overpowering the evil spirit last week, as he's healing and restoring those with physical illnesses and diseases as we see today. In all of these ways, Jesus is showing us his authority over every area of life. Let's look at these accounts of miracles of healing and and restoration. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her and took her hand and helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. They leave the synagogue. Jesus ministers to Peter's mother-in-law, who is ill with a fever. They uh, actually have, in Capernaum today, you can, they, I don't know if it's true or not, but archaeologists would say that this, there is a church built on the home where they think this happened, or traditionally the site of this. Um, the count is very simple. Jesus takes her hand and helps her up. The fever leaves and she begins to wait on them. It seems almost a little callous to our ears, doesn't it? It's kind of funny. She was really sick and Jesus helps her up and so that she could get to wait on them and make them dinner or something. It does kind of sound a bit funny. Maybe after being healed by Jesus, she'd never felt better in her whole life. Um, Certainly, she would have wanted to serve any guest who had come. So, uh, it, would, uh, it just sounds, I think, kind of funny to our ears the way the text reads there. But then more people begin to come over and, you know, because they know that Jesus is there. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. There aren't too many secrets in villages. Jesus has created a big stir, and the whole town shows up that must have heard what happened uh, there in the synagogue. It doesn't seem to matter what the illness was. Jesus held them all, and he cast out demons. It says that the people, it says specifically that they came over in the evening after sunset, which would have been due to their observance of the Sabbath, as Jewish people would only walk certain distances and only do, um, not do most normal things or any work on the Sabbath day, which was over at sunset, and so then after that, everyone comes over. 
The next story of healing happens somewhere else in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. After leaving there, Jesus travels throughout the Galilee region. We get sort of a summary statement there, and then he encounters this man with leprosy. If you aren't familiar with it or the way it's described in the Bible, leprosy is um, um, a description, one word that they use that covers a whole host of diseases of the skin. Some of them were very contagious. Some of them were very painful. All of them made a person unclean religiously, and that would mean that they were... There were specific rules in the Old Testament about the diagnosis and the treatment of leprosy because it could be contagious. A person with these kinds of afflictions had to be kept isolated. If the disease cleared up, then they could go to a priest and could be examined and then restored to the community after offering the sacrifice. So that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 44. He's asking the man to fulfill the law of one who was healed from leprosy. The man was required to go to the priest and be declared clean. Leprosy was a dreaded disease in those days because of the way that you were isolated. You were a potential threat to your family and your friends. You couldn't be with them. You were cut off from almost all human contact. In the days before the germ theory of disease, right, people didn't know how these things would happen, and there was a lot of fear about uh, the cross-contamination and about touching things that you touched that would then make other people sick. You couldn't be touched, and anyone who touched you became unclean. So Jesus is doing something very symbolic and very remarkable. As it reads in this account, it specifically says that Jesus touched the man. And instead of the man making Jesus unclean, what happens? Jesus makes the man clean. Jesus restores him to health instantly. This is authority on display. Not only is Jesus not subject to human disease and illness, he can drive it out of anyone who is afflicted by these things. We're also introduced in this account to the reason that Jesus is healing people. It's not just to prove his authority and validate his message, right? Verse 41, Jesus is filled with with compassion. He's full of mercy. He feels the pain of the other person who's hurting, and he's moved to action to help. Jesus is not aloof and uncaring. He's not sort of floating through our world. He's deeply connected to the pain of the human experience, and that pain moves him to act. That pain that, pain that he feels moves him to, to step in and being involved in a solution. After healing the man, Jesus asks him not to say anything about this to anyone, but go and show himself to the priest to fulfill the Old Testament law, as I mentioned, and then we read verse 45. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. The man spoke all about about it, and as a result of this, Jesus is sort of pushed back to the margins. 
not able to enter into a town normally, but stays outside in what Mark calls lonely places. And yet people still find him, and they come to him from everywhere. This is a point in Jesus' ministry, right, where he's very famous in this area. He's a sensation. And yet we can assume, probably, that the depth of most people's response to him is pretty shallow. They're certainly wowed, but, that may not, but they may not yet be committed to follow him or to embrace his message. One of the interesting questions which comes to us in this passage is the fact that Jesus asks the leper not to spread the news about him. It's a bit curious, isn't it, since Jesus had arrived on the scene to announce this message, and that this message was accompanied by signs of mighty, uh, that the good news was accompanied by these impressive and mighty signs to testify to its truthfulness. So why should this man not share the good news with everyone? And we saw the same question last week when Jesus forbid the demon to speak. In verse 34, in this passage today, we see the same pattern. Jesus wouldn't let the demon speak because they knew who he was. And what's really interesting is that this becomes a theme in Mark's gospel. After four of his miracles, including this one with the leper, Jesus commands the people not to share about what happened. There are three accounts of evil spirits specifically commanded to be silent, as well as what it says in verse 34. On a couple occasions, the disciples are told to be silent. And then another couple of times, Jesus kind of um, leaves the crowd to escape being seen. And so this contributes to this idea, this theme that Mark is giving us, of there's some kind of secret going on. That Jesus is is somehow kind of trying to keep certain things under wraps. Uh, And many theories have been advanced to explain this. I won't get into them. Most of them are sort of critical to the faith. There was a famous one from uh, 1901 that has been very influential in biblical studies through the 20th century, but I think it's it's wrong. I think his, his thesis is wrong. I think the simplest explanation is really the best one. The simplest explanation is that Jesus wants to avoid premature and false understandings of who he is. And what he came to do. And we don't know necessarily what it is, but something about each of these situations made him seek to minimize misunderstanding and temper expectations. And even if it didn't work, as in the man didn't obey Jesus, the point was that Jesus didn't want to be made king by force, as it says they want to do in John 6. He didn't want only to feed people's stomachs, he didn't want only to heal their bodies. He didn't want only to be a miracle worker. He had a plan that was unfolding over the course of a few years, not all at once. And so I think that's really, you know, the best explanation of what's happening here and why Jesus is encouraging uh, this man uh, not to share and not to change the expectation of what Jesus has come to do and take the priority off of the message and place the priority onto the healing and the power As we reflect then on this passage, let's summarize a bit, kind of uh, maybe in a different order than the text does, but put the pieces together to see what it means for us today. First, we see that Jesus' compassion. We see his willingness to feel and to act decisively to meet human need. Jesus was moved by compassion to heal the sick, and we see it many, many other times in the Gospels. And so he moves from town to town to heal the sick. 
and to free the oppressed. Because he loves people. Because he wants to. And it's simple, but it's really important, isn't it? Sort of a foundational kind of bedrock thing as Mark is introducing Jesus to us. If we get back to the basics of what did Jesus care about, is he cares about people. He loves them. He has compassion on them in our weakness. Second, we see Jesus has authority. And his authority is first and foremost in his message. His words are of ultimate importance. We ignore his message to our own peril and our own hurt. We find great peace and encouragement and hope by meditating on his words and by going deeper to learn what he means and to grow in our understanding and our commitment to his message. His words tell us the truth about the universe. His words contain precious promises that we can trust in, promises that we can orient our lives around. Third, we see how the exercise of Jesus' authority is shown tangibly over evil spirits and over illnesses. It's not difficult for him to heal and restore people to health. He just does it. As far as we can tell. I don't know what kind of... You know, there is that story where he heals the woman and the power goes out from him and, you know, he feels that. You know, you, you, it doesn't seem like Jesus is... And it, there isn't any limit to his power. There are no examples of failure... Right? No demons that he can't cast out. No diseases that he can't heal. Mark is showing us that he has authority without limits over these problems and plagues for our world. Putting all three of these facts together and applying them to our own lives is actually, I think, the most important thing, but it's also the most difficult thing. Because if we're honest, our life does not always seem to reflect these truths. One truth, Jesus loves us. The second truth, Jesus has given us promises in his word. The third truth, Jesus has authority over everything. Right? Our experience would tell us that we can't always see how these truths line up and make sense and fit. If Jesus loves me and I understand and I trust in his promises and he has authority to break the power of evil and completely heal, then why doesn't this always work out? Why, within our body here, do we find unanswered prayers for healing for us and for those we love? And as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, for someone who is really sick, does this account of Jesus healing people bring comfort? I hope it does, and I think we'll get there. But it also raises questions. This is where we really live, right? How can we engage with this message so that we can line up our experiences with these miraculous events? I think we have to consider that part of the answer is also in seeing what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't stay in Capernaum and heal everyone all the time. He didn't go to every leper colony and heal everyone within a 50-mile radius. And everyone that he healed got sick and died later on. Everyone that Jesus raised to life died later on. Lazarus and the widow's son and all of these people that Jesus raised to life are not still walking around today. So as powerful as these signs are, 
we have to see that the temporal, that the physical reality of them is true, but it's not the biggest truth. The biggest truth is what they tell us about Jesus. Mark wants us to see who Jesus is and what he can do, right? So what do these miracles mean for us today? Last week I said the fact that Jesus is more powerful than the evil spirits means that we are ultimately safe. That the enemy of our souls is not more powerful than the one who can save our souls. And that changes everything. And so we have a kind of security that goes deeper than our physical and temporal security and safety. Jesus said in Luke 21 that persecution would come to his followers, as we've heard so poignantly and powerfully this morning. He said that they would be delivered over by brother or sister or by family, that they would be delivered up to those who hate God, that some would be put to death. But Jesus said, but not a hair on your head will perish. And it seems perhaps like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it's the difference right here. That you will be secure, even if you aren't safe, from all physical harm. And the same principle applies to the message today about Jesus' ability to heal and to restore people. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be fully and completely and eternally healed. Every wound will be mended. Every struggle will be overcome. Every disease will be conquered. Everything broken will be fixed. Far more can be mended than you know. There's a line that I read in a book, and it stuck with me. Far more can be mended than you know. We don't even really, can't even really imagine how much better life will be. But what Jesus is giving us here, as he's introduced to us, is he's giving us an amazing foretaste. Just a foretaste. Just a glimpse. Of his power to remake the world. Of his authority to fix all that's broken. But it's just a foretaste. It's not the ultimate thing. Those people who were healed still lived in a broken world and still felt the effects of it. And so for us who are sick, body or mind, spirit, soul, we can see these facts. Jesus loves me. He's promised good to me. He has the power to do anything. And we walk by faith that this is really true because we can't always see it. We can't see it in the way that we would like to see it. And we won't see it until the kingdom of God is fully revealed in our lives forever. And of course, our faith isn't just wishful thinking. Our faith means that we take Jesus at his word. That's what he told us to do. And for our health-obsessed culture, this may not be a satisfying answer. And we feel the pain of the dissatisfyingness of it. We have to wait. That we don't know if Jesus will heal us or not. But our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in our health. Our hope is in our Savior. I want us to think again, one more time, of the presentation of this Messiah to us. 
Jesus is introduced as this man who has a world-changing message. And he authenticates it by his supernatural power to overcome every disease and every evil. And brothers and sisters, we see this by faith today. And we wait in the expectation for that faith to become sight. And so we pray, we support one another, and we encourage each other of the complete healing that's coming, don't we? Amen. Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for coming to our world and giving us even these many years and many miles from these events, many miles away, many years later, we thank you that we can see a glimpse of something different. That the end of our world is not broken, but it's fixed. And so, Lord, we do want to trust you and want to look to you with eyes of faith that see the, the small things and the big things that you're doing around us and that put our hope and that we would put our hope in the future that's to come. Lord, be with those uh, who, among us who are, who are ill, those we love, who are struggling. Help them to place their hope, not in a cure or a doctor, but in you. Lord, we do ask Jesus for you to come and to remake our world. And in the meantime, give us faith, give us trust, give us assurance, as, as little children have, that you are at work for the good of your people. Root this message in our heart this week, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.